Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech, the training partner that demystifies fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. On the show this week, we've got Ollie Cavanaugh. Hi, I'm Ollie Cavanaugh, and I'm co-founder and CEO of Strike. And Charles Dowd. Hi, I'm Charles Dowd. I'm co-founder and chief product officer at Strike. Sharing their story on Strike which is portable personal payment tech designed to make tipping, giving, and paying convenient, safe, and easy for all. In this chat, we get into the confluence of experiences and ideas that brought Ollie and Charles together to launch Strike, getting a product live and raising an angel round in less than three months, the benefit of having done it before when you need to build a team swiftly, and the big road ahead for Strike, all right here on Money Never Sleeps. Money Never Sleeps, pal. Well, rolling right into it, Ollie, you fly any helicopters lately? Uh, no, not in a while. My license wouldn't be current, but I do have a private pilot's license for helicopters, which I got in San Diego in California when I was over there working for a startup that I co-founded. Did you know that was still in your LinkedIn profile? No, I was wondering, how on earth did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, okay. it's all there, dude. It's all okay. there. How, how, how did that yeah. come about, even? Um, well, I was living in London and I was getting the tube home one night after a few drinks and office party and it wasn't that late but I was reading a private eye magazine and there was an ad for quite simply just said learn to fly helicopter and I always wanted to fly helicopter since I was kind of like six seven years old and I just thought hey I can actually probably do this now and I actually uh, called the number and someone answered this is probably maybe eight or nine o'clock at night and uh, this lady said yeah we'd love to have you come along at Saturday at 10 a.m and I went to Denham Airfield which is just inside the N25. And I started flying, learning with this guy called Q Smith, who at the time was the world helicopter aerobatics champion. And he took me up in a helicopter and tried to freak me out and did crazy stuff like, you know, loop spiral rolls, stuff that you're not even technically supposed to be able to do in Robinson helicopters and tried to frighten me. And when we landed, he said, did you like that? I said, I loved it. And he said, okay, yeah, you should do this. And so I, that's how I started that and uh, ended up getting the private license. I planned going commercial at one point, but it, I then went down a different track, which is now I'm going to try and make some money and then just fly for fun. Yeah. Wow. I think we should end the podcast right there, dude. You know, you can't get any better than barrel rolling in a, in a helicopter, right? Yeah. Well, listen, Ollie and Charles, great to have you guys here. Co-founders of Strike, you guys are doing quite well in Ireland, making lots of noise and obviously want to see that noise continue to grow. Ali as CEO, Charles as Chief Product Officer, but I got to imagine you guys were just kind of like, all right, who's going to take what role with the two of you guys coming together on this as co-founders, right? And play play to your strengths, but let's get, let's get into that, okay? So what I'd like you guys to do is both of you just take your turns and share your backstories with us and, and how you got to this point of deciding to do this. Ali, with your background, with your computer science degrees, ventures in encryption, SaaS and mobile, sales leadership roles and then Flender, and then now Strike, right? And then Charles, with your mathematics degrees, I'm going to say the whole word, so I don't have to try to say it the Irish way, which I still can't do. It may seem easy, but I'm not even going to try to say it. Your 10 formative years, as I saw, in software development, R&D, and product development, four ventures as an advisor or co-founder slash executive, Facebook in the middle of the mobile boom, which must have been fantastic to be there at that point, then Plink, then Clever Cards as on a contract, and now Strike. Now, obviously, I just kind of fast forwarded through that for both of you guys, but maybe just kind of hit on some of the high points as you're going through your own stories, and then we'll we'll tease those out a bit more. Yeah, Ali, do we want to start with you? Okay, yeah. So this is the ninth tech startup I've been with, six of which I co-founded. The others were there kind of early stage. Some nice, really nice success stories. Changing Worlds, which was a mobile personalization company. Bright Bill, which was a personalized billing company. Irish success stories. And then some of the ones I co-founded myself were in mobile applications, mobile technology space, and then leading to the most. The last two have been fintech. So I'm only kind of recent to fintech in the last, I guess, five years or so. And that's how I came across Charles in the fintech circles, him being a bit of a star of the, the the payments tech industry. Of course, you would meet him at events and things. So we knew each other, I think for yeah, whatever, at least four, maybe five years before we decided to 
kind of hook up uh, because we found a massive problem that had an opportunity just waiting to be done properly and we figured we could do it together and that was strike absolutely absolutely and i'm i'm, I'm kind of reading a little bit more into the story already but charles why don't you connect us to the story that ollie just shared yeah 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 so in my career when you look at it you know and on linkedin it has lots of different things that i've done but actually but you'll find a common thread is I'm always searching for the next new thing. Yeah, I'm really interested in solving the unsolved problems that are right in front of us. That's my sweet spot of what's next. Yeah, I spent the first six years of my professional career writing code for IBM, which was really, really interesting. IBM had half a million employees and it was a machine, but it learned a lot about you know, large organization structures and what I wanted and what I didn't want. At IBM, you know, everything was little micro contributions. So my contribution was I wrote one page of the CUA 91 interface design guidelines, which I'm very proud of, at the tender age of 21. And I got my first taste of startups in 94, which is when I joined a CRM startup, which was the first time actually that CRM was ever built. And uh, that was really, really interesting. And ever since, it's been startups all the way, except for one little hiccup in the middle where I couldn't avoid the greatest startup of all time, which was Facebook, which was joining Facebook 2010. What a rocket ship. Did you know, it's like three MBAs, you know, six engineering degrees and lots of fun and two countries as well. So I worked in Ireland and the US for uh, Facebook. So it was pretty cool. So the reason why Ollie and I are connected together is this is a really cool problem, right? And I have a particular set of skills, which can get us out the door pretty quickly. So I'm able to take ideas, problems, and build them into really simple products and get them out the door to get them tested with customers really, really quickly. And then we build teams once we cookie cut. That's, a, yeah. that's how we, that's why that, we're working together. That last point is really interesting because, you know, I, I told you how many startups I've been in, in, involved with, but this one is really different to any of them. None of them have ever moved this quickly. And it's, it's because of what Charles just said, you, you know, we had the idea and within 24 hours, he was building the product and we had an MVP very, very quickly. Uh, we were revenue generating uh, within three months, actually, which, you, you know, you both of you, you know, Owen and, and Pete, you'll know is, is <laughs> yeah, very unusual. that's, that's unheard of. Impressive. Yeah. And, and not, not just revenue generating, Ollie, right? So we actually, the only reason why we had to wait three months to be revenue generating was because... We actually, we knew we had something really new and we wanted to protect it. So we actually spent the first three months in stealth protecting the technology that we knew we'd need to protect to actually enter the market. So uh, yeah. otherwise we might've gone a little earlier, in fact, <laughs> to revenue yeah. generation. I actually, Pete, as well, we, we decided we wanted global protection. So rather than doing the usual kind of filing here, we just went straight to, to the US. So, cause that not only does it give global protection, but it's also privacy, it's uh, sealed you know, for a period. So we wanted to use that time to really get traction and get a march out there before anyone would really kind of know what we were up to. And in in that vein as well, we haven't done any PR or anything. Now, there's actually been things in the news about us recently, but that's our clients actually who are doing press. We haven't done anything. We've done no marketing, no PR. We're still trying to just get traction quietly under the radar. Yeah. Where did the idea come from? Like, I know obviously you guys know each other a good while, but where did the concept for it? How did that conversation even come up? From my side, a year and three weeks ago, you know, when proper lockdown happened, I I just stopped carrying cash. I actually kind of didn't like carrying cash. I, was, I didn't, I, I almost kind of moved that way anyway, but I literally stopped overnight, bang, no cash. Even stopped carrying my cards, no debit cards, credit cards. And I didn't even stop carrying my driver's license actually. And just went about with my phone and everything, I Apple Pay, everything's set up on my phone. And, and I just thought this is brilliant. You know, the world finally has kind of caught up on, you know, Sweden, I think, which is the only country was really kind of there or thereabouts with the cashless. So we were probably at least 10 to 12 years away from research uh, to the, ca uh, the cashless society. And I thought this was great initially, but really, really quickly, really quickly, within another week, I'd say after that, I realized actually there's been a bunch of occasions where I wanted to give someone money and I couldn't. And I thought that's kind of interesting. Uh, like how many people have gone totally cashless like me? And I kind of looked around and asked around and talked to, like everyone had gone cashless. And then I started talking to people who worked in industry. So I spoke to the kind of the delivery driver at lunchtime. Um, you know, do you get tips in here? No, not at all. The Just Eat River on a Friday night that we would normally get, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I can't tip you, you know, and, you know, like, hey, it's okay. You know, no one's tipping there. 
And there were loads of occasions like this. And I kind of sat down and listed a whole bunch of them. And there was also a bar that was known to deliver pints to your home or to wherever you were. And it was the same thing there, you know, and they were really working. These are people who are kind of working hard for, you know, for a reward, which everyone was giving them up until, you know, just over a year ago. And that reward went to zero. So it became a huge problem for actually three parties, as we discovered. You know, one is, you know, all us, because we actually want to reward people and thank people and tip people. So it's actually a problem for us because we feel embarrassed. And then the second thing, of course, um, it's we're helping the, the people who relied on that portion of their income. But thirdly, we're really helping business owners because their employees' income and morale have plummeted during COVID. And there was very little they could do about it without digging deeper into their pocket, maybe, and actually increasing salaries. So it was a huge pain point for a lot of business owners. So we fixed all three of these things now with Strike, actually. And tell us about the product. Tell us what is Strike. So if we go back to kind of those some of those examples I was giving, so I was thinking in my head, there's got to be some way, something that these guys can carry that can maybe trigger a payment that's secure as your average payment terminal or card machine that you would see in any shop or store. We reckon probably there's 60 million people affected by this, just in English-speaking countries alone. Those 60 million people aren't going to go out and buy card machines and you know walk around with clunky card machines plugged in that are expensive. But I, I thought there's got to be something that we can use to trigger a payment that's just as secure in the one device that everyone already has on them, which is their phone, which actually has internet connection. It has lots of security built into it. It's got Apple Pay. It's got Google Pay. It's got Face ID. It's got Touch ID. It's got lots of security. In fact, it's more secure than using a card, a credit card or a debit card. And But no one had really kind of made it simple enough and low cost enough that it could be something that could trigger that event, like a little piece of hardware could be produced by the tens of millions for all those people that I'm talking about. So I thought, could we use you know some kind of RFID, NFC technology? And that's when I actually reached out to Charles. So I thought, like, who's the leading payments tech expert, you know, that, that I know anyway, you know, maybe in Ireland, but maybe, maybe not, but certainly in my circles. And so I asked him, you know, is there something that could be done that actually we could ship out to 60 million people and all of a sudden anyone can just tap them and give them that secure payment? And uh, we found a way. And not only to find a way, we find something that was, you know, Charles said, I think this is actually patentable. So let's keep it under the radars. Let's build it. I'm going to quit my job and join you. And that's what we did. We quit our job. Within three months, we're revenue generating. All right. Now, Charles, I can see on Ollie's background, encryption, mobile, obviously those are some key components. You've got your payments tech background. Were you already thinking about this before Ollie reached out to you? Was there something kind of in the background that might have been on the shelf waiting for a moment? Or was this kind of, hey... I'm just going to figure this out. The reality is that I've, I've always been fascinated by the performance of cash. I actually think that cash is a really interesting product and that digital solutions have never quite matched what cash can do. Cash is really interesting. It's when you, in, when you engage with someone, you hand them a $10 bill or a five euro note. It's, it's a person to person transaction. It's instant transfer of 100% of the value and it's irreversible. And it's quite interesting because actually that's really difficult to do on digital platforms. And I've tried a number of times with a number of startups to actually really try and fix that problem. And so this has always been an underlying effort, I guess, in a number of things that I've done in my past. And to be honest, the technology hasn't really moved where it needs to be until very, very recently. Yeah. So now we have ubiquity of mobile phones. NFC is available in almost all of them. QR codes are ubiquitous, especially in Asia. So now we've got this culmination of sort of a technology on the doorstep when the pizza arrives that actually matches the problem that we're trying to solve. So this, so was there something on the shelf ready to go? No, but this is like, for me, it's been a fascination since about 2004, when I actually, I was building a remittance solution from New Jersey to Haiti for a microfinance organization called Funcose, and that no mobile phones, no proper internet, the idea that you could actually move money through continents was, was just, you know, bizarre, right? And now here we are with a super, super cool, simple solution that allows two people who don't know each other to meet for the first time and have a really simple digital exchange that replicates that cash exchange of instant, irreversible, 
and 100% of the value. That's actually really cool, right? Yeah. I'm kind of thinking, Charles, you're kind of like the Mark Cuban with broadcast.com, right? 1995, 96, whatever. It was the idea for Netflix t- 10 years too early, right? And he wanted to solve that problem and he tried to solve the problem with dial-up internet. And it built some pretty cool tech, but it really wasn't going to be able to perform because not everybody was yet had the technology at their disposal to make use of it. Only a few people did, right? And then he sold it to Yahoo or something like that for a mint, made some good money off of it, and then you know went and bought the Dallas Mavericks or whatever. But you know, it, it, if that that kind of impetus was there the whole time to do it, and then it just took the rest of the world to catch up to you, right? That's pretty cool. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and in some ways, the pandemic has accelerated this need. The it's actually accelerated the density of the need. Let's say. Yeah. And I think what it's done, though, is it's actually a tipping point. It's, this is not a pandemic product. This is actually just happens that it's a perfect combination of events that actually was ready to happen. And now everyone has embraced, right? So that happens sometimes. Something happens. And, you know, we always think about change happens in this sort of smooth curve. It doesn't. It tends to happen in these step changes. It's like it steps on the stairs. What was, you know, novelty yesterday is a necessity today. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of product we've built. Absolutely. The first wave of launch customers we had were delivery drivers. And so we started off with like a a bunch of um, food delivery places and we're rolling out now to about 700 delivery drivers. Um, But the first wave, the first night they used it, um, they were coming back into the, the restaurant or into the takeaway coming back in. And each time they were coming back, it was like the first time they got a chance to check their phone and they would be saying, wow. There's money there. Like I just just made um, ten euro um, from those last two deliveries, and then they're coming back in and they're kind of looking at their phone. And it was amazing, you know, how quickly that happened. And then we were on board at another place last week, and the the, the time from him actually being on board to his first tip was less than five minutes because he came in, he wow. got a strike bag, he went out in his way. We, Charles was actually there because we were kind of just observing as well. We don't need to be there; people can do it themselves. But he was, uh, but he was on board. He was gone. And his delivery, his first delivery actually tipped him like five euro. And that was within five minutes of him having the product. It's like, it's mind boggling to see. Then the stickiness, of course, is, you know, you can understand the stickiness of that. And, you you know, so product market fit is all about time to value, right? So it's like, I try the product, I get the return, I get the, I get the dopamine, I get it, I start, I go back. And they call it the magic account, (laughs) the the, the delivery guys, because it's like, wow, I just, go out, I deliver things. And we discovered really interesting things, like really surprising things. Like we thought, oh yeah, it'd be like, it's on the doorstep, that's when it would happen. But on the doorstep is where the the idea is introduced. But actually we're finding that there's sort of a tip now situation, but the tip later is actually really interesting. So we give, we've developed a solution that allows the, them to also receive a tip later and it happens after they've actually eaten, or even what actually happens a lot is the next morning, you know, someone's getting up and they're actually going, oh, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to go tip that guy who brought that food to me last night. Okay. And that, that's, that's really, and still was so surprising to us to actually see these, like this product appear from customer usage. You know, it's, it's pretty, Absolutely. It's just, that's such a wonderful feeling when it happens, right? You see your product being used in completely unusual ways, unexpected ways, I guess. Do, do you have that little flux capacitor that goes up like they do in Curve when you go back in time? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you guys know what I'm talking about with the product Curve? No. Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of an umbrella card that sits on top of all your other cards. And they've got this feature that if you direct a paint, you use your Curve card, either you know through oh, apple yeah, pay curved, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and then yeah. You, you direct it to your n26 no actually i meant to use my revolute for that right you can go back in time and switch it from your n26 charge to your revolute debiting your revolute card and when you do that step on the curve app on your phone this little flux capacitor from back to the future pops up on your phone and it's showing you going back in time right okay i love the curve product it's it's a awesome it's it's very it's it's very cool it's a it's essentially you know removing your wallet and returning it into one card you know what we found that people aren't even carrying one card anymore like they're carrying none you know they just carry their phone with them that's the only thing they always have even when they come to the door to pick the pizza they still have the phone in their hand it's yeah it's quite fascinating 
This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Pat Fintech, demystifying fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. Pat Fintech enable financial services professionals to transform their capabilities into the digital age with dedicated virtual training programs geared towards those that can develop, deliver, and monitor optimally customized user experiences balanced by appropriate governance, control, and oversight. To learn more about Pat Fintech, go to moneyneversleeps.ie slash patfintech. Presumably then, um, and I'm thinking because I may have used this example at some point in time in the last few months, but uh, it makes me think of Square and their initial rollout and the adoption of that and what that did for small to medium businesses, how transformative that was. Is that kind of where you see it? You know, especially you compared it to a payment terminal, you know, people aren't going to plug in a payment terminal and drive around with it. But I suppose you've effectively created a payment terminal on the phone then. Well, actually, what we're doing now on is, is kind of interesting. We're turning any surface into a payment terminal. And so we're actually rolling out and probably by the end of the summer, we'll have close to 8,000 payment terminals in, in Ireland. And a lot of those are things that you wouldn't expect. They're protective screens in shops, protective screens in taxis, wearable devices, fundraising boxes for charities, like all sorts of things that literally we can turn anything, we can retrofit anything into a, a secure payment terminal. And so that's really interesting. And that's not something that the likes of, you know, Square, as you mentioned, is doing. But but they did start off quite simple. And I think they've become a bit more complex. And companies like them aren't really addressing this market that we're in. When they brought out their first dongle, it was transformative for those businesses oh, yeah. that wouldn't have had the payment terminal. All of a sudden, yeah. they had this simple solution that transformed how they're able to accept payments. It seems like you're on onto the same kind of thing, if you know what I mean. In terms of that transformative it's piece. Like, yeah, you have to, in my mind, I always like visualize transformation or innovation as like a rubber band, right? You know, you pull it and then eventually it snaps, right? And then that's actually when the, when the, when the change happens, right? It's like, oh yeah, we stretch a piece of technology as far as we go and then it snaps, right? And what happened with Square in the beginning was fantastic, right? It was like, oh, let's just plug this little tiny dongle into the headphone jack on my phone. Don't have those anymore, right? And you can then swipe the card through the phone jack. That's because the content of the mag stripe is actually just some text that's typed into the phone. You know, when you swipe your card at the point of sale, it's actually, that's a keyboard interface. It's literally typing the numbers off the mag stripe. So it's a, that's just a hack, right? But what it did was it allowed Square to move really quickly, super simple dongle, off you go. But actually payments, as they become super mobile, have actually become more and more and more complex to actually execute. And what happened was all that functionality was being put into this dumb piece of plastic, which they then had to try and make smart. But there was a change that happened a few years ago, right, with the adoption of Apple Pay and Google Pay, where the device that was being used to pay, the payment instrument, was now super smart, but all the payment infrastructure wasn't changed to match the smartness of the tender type. Yeah. So that meant you now had this super complex system where you actually need two mobile phones and a connected device to actually make a transaction if you're a small merchant. That's like, what, $3,000 worth of equipment just to make one, one payment transaction. And so what we've done is essentially broken that rubber band right? That to say, actually, let's bring it back to where it's really simple again. And now all the smarts is actually in the phone that essentially is tapping a super dumb terminal. And it's sort of turned everything backwards, but actually that's the innovation that's let us actually create this, really this terminal from anywhere. People, places, objects can turn into payment terminals. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. It is. And the fact that you've got patent pending here is, you know, it was a pretty big deal, right? And, but thinking about the market, right? And thinking about, yes, Ali, like you said, 60 million people out there who have some sort of dependency on the ability to be tipped. Right. And but you're thinking about, well, what's the total amount? Right. On an annual basis, what does that amount to in dollar terms? Right? And, and then yeah. how are you guys going to make money off of that? Right. And obviously anything in the payment space generally tends to be done as a transaction fee. But how are you guys doing this? How did you think about the market and size the market? And then come up with the business models so that you guys can make money off this? Yeah, so we did research and, and kind of the 
size that market just in the English-speaking countries and the kind of high-tipping cultures um, initially, just, just to get some kind of idea of what the, the, the target market was. And that number that that you just said correlates with uh, just over $40 billion annually in top line volume of tips. And there's three ways that we can make money from that. And we kind of mix and match depending on you know the environment. But we have what we call strike tags. They can be smart stickers. They can be you know, smart wearables. They can smart whatever with the, with the tech inside it. And we, we sell those upfront. We also have a model where it's a, a rental model where for a low monthly fee, you have the product. And then, of course, we have a transactional fee as well, as you said, which, you know, obviously fairly standard. So we, on the on the transactional side, we've had some really interesting stats, actually. We made the fees optional. So the person tipping or giving, in the case with some of our charity customers, and we're working with the three largest charities in the country. And so we made that transactional fee optional. And if it's a tipping environment, over 90% of people will just accept the tips because if they're giving, you know, five or 10 bucks to the, the, the person, they want them to get the full amount in over 90% of the occasions where it's a charity they're giving to, it's over 98% are accepting the fees. So it becomes almost free to the recipient in that sense. Okay. I'm you know? with you. And and when you, you know, you guys pulled together a nice 625,000 euro pre-seed round and... You know, at that stage with the folks that you were raising that from, and I know Enterprise Ireland were part of that bag, right? That, you know, talking about the market and the size of the market, how important was that to your investors and in thinking about, wow, this could actually take off? I'm going to say, you know, professional investors, when they look at something like this, you know, they have to know that there's a large enough addressable market from a revenue point of view to generate at least a billion dollar revenue business. We operate like like a B2B SaaS company. So it's very partner driven, go to markets, very cheap for us. But we actually, we look like a B2C company, right? So we actually have the ability to have sort of winner takes all B2C type outcome. So we think that, you know, that the winner in this market will take about 30% of the market. And for us, that, you know, that's just in the English speaking markets we're looking at, that's, you know, a multi-billion dollar market. Yeah. And that's just for tipping. That's not counting the fact that there's a direct pass crossover into, into small merchant payments, micropayments, which not many people have been able to solve at scale economically. And we're already proving that we can do that. So. I think that those two things together, you know, make this a really attractive business for investors. So when we look at the initial angel round that we just did. What they're really looking at is who are the founders? Do they have ambition? Do they have the right ability to execute? And that's what they're looking at. Yeah. And they say, is there a big market here? Probably. But, you know, do we need to do a giant TAM analysis or something to do that? No. Right. It's like, are you the right guys to do this? And are you getting some traction? Yes, you are. Great. We'd like to back you and make sure that it really can be successful. And that's that's what this is about, giving yourself the runway to make the mistakes, to build a product so you can be successful. And in more than one occasion, actually, people that we'd approach for partnership or strategically, not even looking for money, because Charles and I were self-funding ourselves at that stage. So, But but a couple of people that we'd approached because they were a potential route to market or a channel for us, turned it around in us, at us and said, you know, is there an opportunity to invest? And uh, because they saw that this is kind of a no-brainer and uh, they're now investors in the company. Cool. Yeah, it's a good way to do it. And I, I think it, it's a good point that you mentioned just there, Charles, is that when it is early stage, like you guys are, that the types of investors that you're bringing in aren't the ones that need you guys to return a $4 billion fund for them, right? You know, yeah. so they're not looking for the, like you said, tam the hell out of this thing for me, please, right? They're not, they're not looking for that. So that's it. That's a really good point. You guys must be already pretty deep into thinking about your next round, which I know, or at least the press reported, you guys were talking about raising over $6 million for the next round. Have you guys kicked that off yet? Yes. So we've started on that and that was leaked early by the way, but still it actually worked out beneficial because we had a number of, we actually had an influx of people interested. We already had six names left over from the first round, who, from the angel round who didn't make it in. So them along with a number of institutional parties now that we're talking to, we have identified what we're going to do is a two-step. So of the six and a half, we're doing one and a half an hour and towards our Series A. So it's looking good. Yeah, and we're moving on that quite quickly. We hope to close that, you know, 
before Q4 this year. Okay. In the vein of always wanting to do new, fun, innovative things, so we're raising against a safe, which is a simple agreement for future equity, which is a really nice, a really nice structure developed by Y Combinator. There are very few of them done this this side of the pond, and we think that it really gives investors a really simple way to get in. It gives us the ability to essentially roll close towards our Series A, but with enough cash to actually maximize the valuation when the Series A happens. Absolutely. But it's a big amount to go for, but it's not in the grand scheme of things with the amount of capital that's available out there right now in the world, right? And just the printing money that's going on. And that printing money is not actually printing cash money, right? Obviously, as you guys have stumbled upon, thinking about Going live with your first customer, Camille Tai, you already mentioned, Charles, that getting some of that early user feedback that as soon as we kind of give you the device or give you the sticker or give you the ability to accept a tip, seeing that immediate, boom, there goes five bucks into my account. Any user feedback that came through in the early days that said, well, we got to change this right away. We did, This won't work. We're, we're, did anything like that come up? You know, so one of the things that we did was take ourselves out of that loop. So we actually we actually employed a independent third party to run independent trials that I will admit that Ollie and I did try to uh, put in influence in the process because we wanted to we thought we wanted to influence the outcome, but they pushed back on us and so we had no influence over the actual trial itself except to deliver the best product we could into that actual trial. And uh, it ran over a four-week period, two staggered weekends with interviews of business owners, the recipients and the tippers themselves with uh, video recordings and transcripts and narratives. And we collected, you know, just huge amounts of actual data because it's, you know, your first interaction with customers is not something to be squandered. It's a really, really, really important, valuable step. And so we went through that process and the outcome was product market fit. It was, it was actually really surprising okay. that literally we came out of the gate, we built a product that made the delivery drivers feel that they were listened to. This was the first time they had a product that was built just for them. Everything else in their world is built for somebody else. This is the only thing that was built just for them to solve a real problem that they had. And the end customer felt that we had built a product just for them because they wanted a way to show appreciation to these people who are like working really hard in the middle of this pandemic and delivering their food and they didn't have a way to reward them. And now they did. And like some of the videos are like, they're, they're actually emotional. You actually feel, wow, here's someone who's, they just feel that this is fantastic and great. And then, you know, as they come out of the gate, you're finding that as we bring on new locations, that this pent up demand for tipping and so someone will bring a delivery to a place where they've come a number of times and they'll give them a 10 euro tip the first time because they missed them the last few times we didn't have any cash. And so we're solving quite emotional problems, you know, relationship problems, you know. I think that that makes this even more rewarding. So we actually were really surprised to find product market fit out of the gate. But to answer your original question, were there things that we did that we had to remove? Yes. You know, for instance, one thing we were doing was collecting a message during the tip process, which you know, sounds like a really great idea, but sometimes people would type the amount in there and some people, you know, weren't really sure what to do with it or they would push the pay button down. But yeah, we responded pretty quickly to, you know, the instant feedback and made it happen. So Nothing like getting product into customers' hands really quickly. That's, that does yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of putting it in the customer's hands because, you know, you'd be surprised they know what they want. Yeah. And they make your product better. Yeah. And we tried lots of different form factors. We're still trying lots of different ones, you know, because what we're doing is so new, you know, no one's really done it before. We're not entirely sure what would work, what wouldn't. I mean, rewind a year ago, actually rewind just over a year ago at the end of the first lockdown, my wife and I decided we've got to get out of town. So we went down to the West of Ireland to the Dunraven Arms Hotel, you know, which is a nice hotel down the West. We're allowed to travel outside our county finally. And we were staying in this, you know, it's a lovely hotel, two stories, no lift, right? No elevator. And so we had bags, our, us and our kids. And the guy, you know, the bellhop carried our bags up to the second floor and we couldn't tip the guy. And and then it was the same thing when we were, we were checking out. I was like, well, I still didn't I have no opportunity to get cash. Couldn't tip the guy. So I said to him, 
you know, if because he was wearing like a little lapel pin, a badge, you know, you often see in the, the uniforms that people wear. I said, you know, if that was actually tappable, if someone could like tap it and give you, you know, two, three or five euro or something, would you wear it? And he said, absolutely. And so that was, and I thought maybe that's a foreign factor. And then I spoke to Charles and we thought maybe wristbands, maybe people wear wristbands that, you know, people can tap or maybe they would just leave a card. Maybe housekeeping actually would just leave a card with a QR code that they could scan. In the case of the delivery drivers, the, the research project tar- Charles was talking about, we had key fobs, you know, like little keychains mm-hmm. things. We had ID cards that were kind of on extenders that they could reach out. But what we also did, actually what was quite successful in that, was we printed oversized QR codes on those cards so that they could be scanned from two meters away, okay. socially distanced. So the delivery drivers dropping off the food, the person can you know be quite far away and still scan it and tip them. So we tried lots of different things. We're continuing to try lots and lots of different things and obviously keeping the ones that work and throwing out the ones that didn't. That's pretty good. Yeah, big, big experiment in A-B testing. Absolutely. Tell me, thinking about growing this, right? I saw in one of the articles that demand for, you know, 50 million tags that you probably could ship. You know, the, there is the demand there, right? And balancing that with the early stage love and attention that you need to give to your first partners, right, that are getting this into users' hands. How do you balance those two, those demands of, wow, this thing, we're getting so much interest in this, but we have to do this at the right pace. We have to give this love to our first customers. We're still a small business, you know, operating with just a few people. How do you do that? Patient urgency. (laughs) (laughs) Elaborate, please. (laughs) <laughs> it it ends up being like products take take a little bit of time to go through a couple of loops so that you actually understand what the outcome is and what you should actually be delivering. So in the same way as you know, loads of people have gone too early into markets and found that they were too early with technology or whatever, and you know have invested too early and failed. What we're trying to do is really find a small number of engagements that we can replicate and make sure that they work. Yeah. And we've done that over the last six months. That's that's really been our focus is find a number of instances of use cases, validate those use cases. And now we actually put teams behind each one of those and say, that's a whole business line. That's a whole business line. That's a whole business line and go after it really, really quickly. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Benefit of experience from having done this, guys, and been in so many startups and seeing what works and what doesn't. It's It's, it's awesome to be in that position in terms of that, those experiences, right. You know, what would you guys say each of you would be kind of top lessons learned from your past entrepreneurial ventures that have enabled you to think about strike in the way that you are thinking about this in the way that you're executing on it. My top one, which is really relevant now because so many people are investors and customers and that are trying to pull us in all sorts of directions and go and do lots of different things that we could do. Uh, so my top one is do one thing and do it really, really well. So we're focusing on one platform that's been used for a couple of different things, but it's essentially the same thing. And it's just really, really effective, simple, you know, portable payments, person-to-person payments, and just do that one thing and, and not get spread out too thin. And it's that constant struggle just to keep funneling those things down and just keep those blinders on when you know you got something good you got to just keep pursuing it right what about you charles yeah so one of the reasons why we're able to move at the speed that we're moving is actually not just our experience but actually our experience with other people so almost everybody on the team so far has actually worked with either ollie and i or ollie or i essentially at some stage in the past on another venture. Not all of them successful, by the way, not, you know, not with people who have worked with us in the past and understand that we care about people. We're really passionate about driving products. We're really passionate about going to market and rewarding people. And so we've actually had a great team of people around us that have reinvested their commitment in us, right? Saying, we trust you guys to actually deliver for us. And, and they have made all the difference. They've allowed us to move really quickly. There's nothing like being able to bring a group of people in that you can, you know you gel with, you know you can work with, you know how to actually negotiate the, the really difficult times. And it's really difficult. You know, it looks all nice and cool and swimming on the outside, but inside it's hard, hard work, you know. And that's the, the other learning that I've had from you know, lots of years of experience of doing this is that, you know, you need a huge amount of resilience 
Yeah, you need to be resilient to all the no's. You need to be resilient to all of the failures, and you need to be resilient to the the challenges of like the fact that you know it's we're doing this. It's 10 p.m. right, and uh, we probably have another few hours of work to do before we start tomorrow, <laughs> where we do it all over again. You know, and it's so it's not for it's not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, I know, I know. It's 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 only seven hours till 5 a.m. <laughs> And do you yeah, know what, exactly. uh, what you were saying there, Charles? That's like it's one of the things that I was most not surprised at. Obviously, you haven't known both of you over a few years now, but you know, really, really surprised in a positive way to see the amount of people that have kind of come back to to work on strike and to be involved in it that you all would have been involved with in the past. Like it says a lot, obviously, about the, the work that you guys do and the relationships that you have there. And it's very impressive to see. And again, but not like that at the stage that you're at, it's people that you've been in the trenches with before. They know what to expect. You know, nobody's going to be surprised at the, the challenges and how difficult it's going to be, but it's people that can rely on each other haven't had that experience before. And it's hugely, like it says, it's a statement to both of you that, you know, the number of people, because obviously I know some of the ins and outs of it, uh, but that have come back to kind of get involved again. It's great to see. Yeah, we're delighted. And it, it, it's amazing. That's it's a big factor in how we've been able to move so quickly because we're able to. So, it, you know, hiring normally takes a long time. We were able to bring in like there's 13 people now involved in strike, you know, six full time and, and the rest kind of part time. And normally it would take a long time to build up a team like that. You know, we've done that. You know. How many months is it? You know, not that long at all. And they're all fantastic. Yeah. And so we're delighted. Yeah, and our and our, our chief growth officer, our most recent hire, we haven't worked with in the past. But interestingly, we we had actually reached out to her in her role at Just Eat because we see them as a real channel for us. That that mm-hmm. is our sweet spot for customers. And we had a really great interaction in that process. And then, you know, she was looking at at another role and it made sense to her even after that short interaction with us and our interaction with her. So even in that way, you know, Adele is, is, is kind of not even entirely new to the team, right? So she's had some experience of working with Ollie and I before she came in the door. And so she's here with us. This is her week three and it's, you know, and I hope that we're delivering on the autonomy and accountability and, you know, and the freedom that we said that we would give her in order to grow this business. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big hire. It's a big hire. When I saw that and immediately, you know, that Just Eat history just made so much sense that it's not just Just Eat, you know, it's Uber Eats, it's all the other players out there in the market where she has a pretty good idea around the business model. Right. So there, there's a lot there. That's what I was saying earlier about our business model. Our go-to-market business model is very much focused on on that sort of, it's a B2B style go-to-market for a B2C style product from an end user point of view. So we have this, like, we get the best of both worlds. We get to build a great consumer focused product, but actually bring it to market like you would a B2B product. So it really changes the acceleration for us. We can we take chunks of thousands at a time rather than one at a time, but we still deliver a product to one person at a time. So it's great from a from a product development point of view and from a business development point of view. For the larger groups as well, you know, Pete, um, there's zero integration effort required. We don't need to integrate to you know their EPOS or into their app or anything like that. You know, we can sit alongside, so we can deploy extremely quickly. And in fact, their user, their employees don't even need an app. So we, we've managed to do this with no app requirement at all and no integration effort. So that's that's helping us run quite quickly. Yeah, I bet. I kind of when it, when I thought about this, I just imagined you guys turning up into one of the big food delivery franchises with a box of devices and handing them out like you're handing out bagels in the morning to employees, right? And saying, just go <laughs> eat. <laughs> right? yeah, that's actually exactly what we do. Yeah, okay. that is that is that is a really that's good description <laughs> of the deployment process. And usually we get some free food back as well because they're usually food places. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually yeah. that 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 it's it's that process that we've protected. So when we actually what we understood was it's not the payment that's important. It's the distribution model and the go-to-market model and the ability to scale that, exactly that. That was the thing to protect. And that's actually what we protected from a patenting point of view. So really different to what you'd imagine we'd actually focus on. Yeah. But the differentiator is scale, go-to-market scale. Yeah. 
Yeah. After oh, yeah. that, it's easy. Oh, yeah. And, and what I'm bubbling over with excitement here, guys, is that, you know, when you think about Stripe, one letter difference, obviously, to Strike, I'm not going to try to read into that or ask you guys about that. But they went to market in 2011 with an incredibly simple product, eight lines of code, and said, we're going to get this into users' hands very quickly, right? Now, we know where they've gone from being a very simple first product to touching so many different parts of the life cycle of small business and medium-sized business and now into bigger business and embedded finance. And there's all these different buzzwords we can throw at that. Where could this all go for you guys? Look, our ambition is very big, obviously. I mean, on Stripe, by the way, we couldn't have gotten up and running as quickly as we did without Stripe, you know, so we, they, they've done us a huge favor, but our ambition is huge. We've got $3 billion opportunities on the table with the products that we have now in place, you know, single platform. So we're still kind of doing one thing, but there's three separate billion dollar opportunities there. We do think we can grow it internationally and you know how many months we've been going. We launched tomorrow in Florida. We launch on Friday in New York, and and then we're launching in London in a couple of weeks' time. And these are actually with customers, so we're actually you know live customers. Jesus, you guys move fast. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I mean, we have to run. What we're doing is very timely. I think that's kind of, that's why it was so easy for us to raise the angel funding because you know it wasn't because they thought you know that we were so phenomenal founders. I mean, obviously we got some 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 experience and pedigree. But the timeliness of the solution is off the charts and no one else seemed to be addressing it. So we just came with the, you know, with the right idea, the right product, actually working product that Charles built like himself, you know, within a, a month or two, a, a working product at absolutely the right time. So we have to run quickly. Now that we have the patent protection, we, we have to get out and get proper traction, you know, during that period where, where we're protected. Gotcha. Well, the name is is an entirely a coincidence. I, I'm, I'm very pleased that you know, we might be even remotely considered to be halfway half halfway as good as stripe one of the one of the great things about stripe was exactly that they focused on a simple product but for a known customer so for stripe they were the first payment company that actually understood that the developer experience was the most important way to get success and what we've understood is that the actual tipped worker is the most important customer for us if we can solve their problems really simply then of course that leads to all the other relationships to do with all the gig economy with all the restaurants with all the hotels and everything else but we start with one person's problem and actually solve that really simply and do it well and then all the other things are laid out in front of us and the other thing that stripe did really well is that the founders built the product on day one. So they know it intimately. They care about it. They're out there every day thinking about it. And and then beyond that, obviously, they've now built a, a gigantic and fantastic machine around them. But with that same concept of the developer experience. And for us, it's about the tipped worker experience. How does that work? What's great for them? Transparency, honesty, you know, availability of funds this is really this is a really important part of these people's income and we need to respect that and deliver on that yeah it's fantastic it's massive it's massive guys oh and i think we're at the part of the podcast where you like to ask your favorite question yeah yeah i know i don't know how well he's going to top his story from earlier so i don't know whether he wants to just chop that bit out and put it at the end <laughs> something we don't know about. <laughs> well it's, it's maybe like have, maybe you have another something ollie if if it's if it's on your linkedin profile then it it's people know about people you, might know right? about yeah okay so okay so in that vein uh guys w- one each i suppose what's something people would not expect to know about you all he has to think now charles do you want to have a go <laughs> this is all my own hair um... <laughs> <laughs> you look like what's his I, I, name tommy carchetti is that a compliment um, yeah yeah no from the yeah. wire what's his name and he's you know aiden what's his name irishman he's in the That's latest cool. fontaine's I, dc video a hero's death he was in Game of Thrones. I forget his second name. It's Aiden something. Gillen, I think. Uh, Aiden Gillen. So, uh, That's right. Thank you. I have a 13-year-old daughter, and I've never seen either Frozen or Frozen 2. And I, I, I consider that to be one of my one of the great That's achievements good. of my that life. That is an achievement. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. you know, I, I, I think I'm just going to have to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Anywho. Thought of something else? My first friend was an orangutan. I was born in um, Borneo in Malaysia. And uh, we lived in a place called Sundakan, which is kind of the uh, on the east coast there. And it's kind of jungle near. And, and actually there are orangutans living there, essentially, around us. So there's cool. pictures of us, you know. Me toddling, waddling around with orangutans. I, I was actually going to ask you that. I heard that on the RTE business podcast that you were on, Ali, and I heard you say Borneo. And I, I vaguely remember that, but I'm like, I was going to ask you that exact question. So that's pretty cool. I would like to say that my first friend as a child was an orangutan as well, but it, that would be an imaginary orangutan. So that's awesome. Okay. Well, we're, we're a pretty good company. We've got a, a, a guy with a 13 year old daughter who's never seen Frozen. And we've got uh, a dude born in Borneo whose first best friend was an orangutan. We've never had either one of those on the show. <laughs> awesome. And what, what's the best way for people to learn more about Strike and get in touch with you guys? Well, they can go to our website, strikepay.co, you know, go on the live chat, read about us there and sign up and we'll keep them posted on what we're doing. And they can express their interest in any sort of different environment that they're in that we can provide something that they can use to accept tips or donations. In the last couple of weeks, we're getting a lot of buskers. I think it might be because it's just that time of year, the weather's starting to improve. You know, buskers haven't been out in a year and they're just they're just expecting to be able to get out on the streets pretty soon. So a lot of them are coming to us asking, you know, can you give me something so that people can just tap to donate on the street? So, you know, with buskers, bartenders, delivery people, all sorts of people coming through the website. So just say who you are, what it is that you do, and we will provide you something so that people will be able instantly, when they're walking along, just tap and give you some money. Awesome. We, we, know, we know one friend who would really enjoy that, ha- having access to Strike as a former busker, be Niall Dennehy from Aid Tech, who was with us way back in episode 11. So he'd love that. And also one of his investors, Jason Calacanis, I heard a story about him the other night. He's an angel investor in the US. He said he tried to tip a flight attendant when he was 15 on his first flight. And basically the flight attendant threw his money back at him. Like, But he's like, I tip everybody. You know, what do you want to do? Anywho, listen, guys, it's been brilliant having you on the show. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Like I said, just see so much opportunity ahead of you guys. And obviously we'll be watching closely. Thanks. For, thanks very much. Pete. It was really nice. Thank you. On the show. And thanks, Owen. Yeah. Good to see, well, see you again. See you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Ollie and Charles for opening up their minds to help us figure out why they do what they do. Links are on our website at moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online and subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter as well. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm the founding partner at Norio Ventures, and I'm an early-stage startup advisor and investor focused on fintech and digital assets. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, drop me a voicemail on moneyneversleeps.ie. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya!